to another episode of the Queen's Management School Good Business Podcast. My name is Laura Steele and I'm a lecturer in business and society within the school. The aim of the podcast is to go beyond the bottom line and examine the ethical, social and environmental responsibilities of businesses. And in this episode, we'll be focusing on the topics of food sustainability and waste. Each year, it's estimated that a staggering 1.6 billion tonnes of food worth approximately 1.2 trillion US dollars goes to waste. This equates to around one third of the food produced globally. At the same time, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization states that around 815 million people, some 10.7% of the global population, are suffering from chronic undernourishment. Addressing the problem of food sustainability and unnecessary waste is likely to become even more pressing in future, with the Earth's population predicted to rise to approximately 9 billion by 2050. This increase, accompanied by a steady trend towards urbanisation, will place enormous demands on the global food supply. Food waste plays a significant role in terms of climate change, generating 3.3 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases. Indeed, recent research suggests that addressing the problem is the third most effective way to tackle what is rapidly becoming the defining issue of our time. However, the situation is complex and multifaceted. In developing countries, food waste tends to occur during production processes, whereas in wealthier nations it's primarily driven by retailers and consumers, who discard excess purchases or find they don't meet their high aesthetic standards. So what role can we play in terms of addressing the social environmental impact of unsustainable food practices and the waste that can result? To discuss these issues, I'm delighted to be joined by Kerry Melville, coordinator of the Belfast Food Network and one of the driving forces aiming to make Belfast a sustainable food city. And Jilly Dugan, author, activist, edible gardener and perhaps my favourite title, self-confessed hapless beekeeper. Kerry, Jilly, thank you for joining me. Hi. So firstly, Kerry, can I ask you, for anybody who's unfamiliar with the organisation, what is the Belfast Food Network and how did it come about? Belfast Food Network was um, set up by Professor Jim Kitchen in 2013. He was invited um, to write a bid on behalf of the city for Sustainable Food Cities, which is a large movement that was set up by three organisations, the Soil Association, Food, the uh, Brighton and Hove Food Partnership and uh, Sustain. And those three sort of got together and sort of decided that food was such a big issue that they needed to have a big national conversation about it. And they wanted to find six founding cities. So Jim put an advisory group together, a plan together um, and put the bid in and we were fortunate enough to get it. That meant that um, Belfast was supported by Sustainable Food Cities for the first three years of of our existence. We've been going for about five years now. And... um, Sustainable Food Cities is is a very large network that's based around an awards framework. And the awards framework isn't really about the accolade. The accolade is almost by the by. It's about the process you have to go through in order to even get anywhere close to getting a reward. It's like a route map to a more sustainable food right. system. So the more that you do it, the more that more of the framework you're doing, the more sustainable your food system is getting. Um and we, we've been working on that for over five years now, yeah. What was the landscape like in terms of food sustainability and waste whenever that was undertaken in 2013? What would you said, in your opinion? Honestly, very similar to now. Um, and I'm, it's not a facetious answer, it's true. Um, the difference is that before there was very little connectivity between activities. There was very little joined up dialogue between public sector, businesses, third sector organisations and um, sort of 
smaller community groups and smaller community initiatives and all that kind of thing. So there was a there was a distinct lack of connectivity. There was no central um, point for things like food poverty. So no one really had a remit to even deal with things like food poverty. Whereas we um, were able to carry out scoping surveys around it and to get the facts and figures behind it. So now we know that Belfast had like one food bank in 2007 and now it has 14. That's not a good curve, obviously. Um, but even, you know, just being able to find out that data and stuff and to be able to share it has been a really interesting process. How did you personally start to become interested in food sustainability? Um, I've always been into sustainability, to be honest. Um, it's the only thing that's really made any sense to me. I was brought up abroad, so I, I went backwards and forwards for, from birth, really, and saw the difference in, in, in the way that different countries dealt with things, but ultimately all the similarities, and they all hinged around food because everybody had to eat. Um, and I grew up in a time of, frankly, catastrophic environmental chaos, um, Bhopal, uh, Chernobyl, the highest deforestation rates of, of all time were in the 90s. The ozone layer was crumbling, but thankfully they waste up to that and they banned CFCs. So you can get a serious reaction mm-hmm. from governments when, when we need it. And thankfully it seems, that, it seems that we're finally getting to a crunch point now. So against that sort of background, sustainability was the only thing was the only sort of glimmer of hope on the horizon, to be honest, because our current our current development practices don't work in line with nature, and that is just that's not going to work in the long run because nature's all we have at the end of the day. I was going to ask you: Do you think we're coming to a point of change, even among the public, in terms of their understanding of, of Thank- what's going wrong? I think so. Yeah, thankfully, finally, um, David Attenborough has been instrumental in in. Um, this even this current phase around plastics, but I think to be honest, David Attenborough actually spawned an entire generation of sustainability consultants because <laughs> we all grew up with his um, amazing documentaries, and he was the one who drew the lines between sort of, you know, um, the, how how human beings impact on the earth and things like that. And he's been saying that publicly for quite a very long time now, decades and decades. And he even says himself he doesn't know what it was. It was only a two minute clip in blue planet really but for some reason that two minute clip has massively massively shifted consciousness which is amazing when you go out to businesses and start to explore these issues what kind of reactions did you get and is it different now than it was back in the early days part of the ethos of sustainable food cities is to go where the door is already open because um, it's a nudge network, so we don't have massive resources and we're up against a massive machine, which means that thankfully, a lot of the time, we're working with people who already get it. Um, and it's more about joining up the dots and things. About tr- When we try to go to organisations that, are <laughs> that aren't doing the best that they possibly could, there is a genuine interest there. And the, any reticence that we've read, any reticence for change that we've come across has purely, honestly, when you, when you get down to it, it's about a lack of understanding, really. So, you know, the attitude would be, well, we've always done it like this. And it's like, well, if you just tweak it slightly, then suddenly you're saving yourself money and having less impact on the planet that sustains us. Um, so as soon as you start talking like that, they're like, oh, oh, oh. So, yeah, money comes, money is the bottom line for many of them. 
And Julie, you've seen this from loads of different angles because you've had a, a diverse and really interesting career. How did you, what was your own journey in terms of sustainable food and obviously the edible gardening and beekeeping now? Well, I suppose um, I've always been interested in food and I've, I've, I mean, growing up, I was an animal lover as well. So I wanted to be a vet, didn't get the grades, did business management instead um, and ended up wanting to farm but not intensively mm-hmm. because I you know it's not right it's not right it's, and in the early 90s that was um a departure you know I was um people thought I was loony bin but because I was kind of female early 20s I did I got quite a lot of press and media and stuff around that but and and for me it's really encouraging to see that um you're not loony if you're doing that now. In fact, you're you're absolutely right. You were ahead of your time. Ahead yeah. of my time. That's always been my problem. <laughs> um, so I've always been interested in food, and and again in the early nineties, sustainable food. That probably that probably wasn't a word that was used much about anything really. But for me, it was ethics, and and it just happens that the best tasting food that's the best for you and the best for your conscience is the sustainable stuff that's produced locally. So mm-hmm. I suppose that, and you know, and I'm 50 now and, and through my life, it's always been about the food and, you know, then my husband and the other door and we think the same. And, and as you get older, you become more aware of how your business might impact on lots of areas, really. Absolutely. You've recently been developing a number of edible gardens, including a well-publicised installation on the roof of the Europa Hotel in Belfast. And people can go on and look that up. There's some stunning pictures of up, of you up on the rooftop. Do you think that's something we're going to see more of? Do you know what? I, w- I would love to say yes. And hopefully <laughs> we will. You know, if you look to other places like New York and Copenhagen and you know, places that maybe are a wee bit more advanced in, in certain areas. Um, I would love to see that. I mean, it doesn't have to be a rooftop. Um, it could be any space at all. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not about, you know, if you've only got, you know, 20 metre square space, you're not going to be self-sufficient in anything, yes. actually, probably. But it's that learning experience. And um, there's a great organisation called GIY, Grow It Yourself, founded by Michael Kelly. Um, from Waterford and he he coined a phrase called food empathy and it's about people developing the understanding that this is how much effort that goes into producing food so if chefs are, are having twice daily deliveries they don't um, they don't generally have to think about who produced the food or where it was produced or how it even gets to the restaurant um, and then wastage as well you know, it's very easy if you're not if you're not familiar with the process, it's it's very easy to chuck something in the bin and you know and not think about it and not worry about it and um and if things are relatively cheap as well, you know it's mm-hmm. like okay I can throw that in the bin because it only cost X and my margins are okay mm-hmm. anyway. So I think growing stuff and and chefs are so under pressure and there is a complete skills shortage in in that industry. Um, when you're really under pressure, it seems there's no time to go outside and tend the plants or pull out a few weeds or, you know, to water the stuff. But actually, it's really good for your head 
um, you know, there there are lots of benefits from getting outside. In the it's almost a form of meditation. Mm. Well, it kind of is, yeah. Mm. And if you can grow, I mean, what I'll always say to chefs is, right, you're not going to grow spuds and onions because you have not room. They're cheap. You can buy them locally. Do you know what I mean? They're, but grow things that are valuable and really benefit from being fresh, like, say, like rocket or salad leaves or edible flowers, which are a thing. And, and mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? And have lovely flavour, like nasturtium leaves and corn flowers and nigella flowers and things like that 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 kind of elevate your food visually i mean obviously the food has to be good in the first place or, just, <laughs> or herbs just you know like and two or three or four or five things to start with that um that when you pick them you can smell them and you just think wow i can't i can't buy this and then actually when Joe from down the road who's trying to set up a growing system in his way farm and a few acres comes into you you recognise the smell and freshness of that thing and go actually Joe deserves my money rather than the big anonymous lorry that weighs in here and the stuff isn't ripe and it doesn't smell of anything and my food benefits as a result. I was going to ask you, as a personally a, a historically atrocious gardener, is there anything that I could start <laughs> with or people like me who have killed everything that they've attempted to grow? Would it be herbs? Would that be a good I, starting point? That's what I've done. Well, I mean, I, I, that's, I'm, I love gardening, but I recently moved to a place where... Um, I don't have a garden, which is quite strange, but I can't complain because I'm in front of the sea, so it's lovely. Um, but all I have is a tiny balcony, so I've just turned the tiny balcony into a really quite prolific herb patch. It's really, really, really unbelievably easy. Um, so I'm growing 11 different herbs in about literally two square foot. Wow. It's brilliant. It's brilliant, honestly. Um, and it just took one afternoon of labour, and I've been able to cook with fresh herbs all summer. It's um, that's what we would push people to to do because we do a lot of uh, grow your own and like cook it programs and things like that and we would always 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 try and get people to try and have at least two or three herb pots on their windowsill because that means immediately you don't have to buy those ridiculously small packets of herbs that are basically washed in eight or nine different chemicals and not quite as richly flavoured as they could be if they'd been grown in soil and rot the moment that you open them Mm, exactly sort of gateway gardening then for those of us who are not natural gardeners herbs yeah i completely agree with that herbs and 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 actually grow things you like yeah. Said people, you know, there's people who will push on and grow like sage and stuff, even though they don't like the flavour of mm. sage. Why would you do that? You know, use the space to grow. Mm. If you're passionate about coriander, you know, have coriander coming on yes. at different stages, um, and hardy herbs, and and two or three of those, so you're taking little bits often, and, and mm-hmm. you know, um, and not sort of cutting them to death and and killing mm-hmm. <laughs> killing them all at once. But yeah, herbs, um, but flavours you like. Mm-hmm. That's, the other thing the other thing for me is planning that if you don't plan your meals that's where you end up running into supermarkets at the last minute buying stuff that you maybe will not use all of it and I would say that's probably personally where some waste comes from so I think I need to plan more would that be your experience that planning helps a lot planning planning's good if you know how to cook well that's the other and that's unfortunately the other not everybody knows how to cook um 
if you don't learn <laughs> simply isn't it there's probably great youtube videos i'm sure now there that we is, have. It, it's it's so strange we've got we've got more more um chef and cookery programs on tv than ever before and yet less actual cooking is happening do you have any idea why that any thoughts on why that might be part of the, we would we would argue potentially that part of that reason is that since the since the end of the Second World War, billions and billions and billions of pounds has been spent on food advertising by the big food companies and things to tell us that our time is too precious um, to, God forbid, think about where our food comes from or anything like that, or cook. Um, so this is an uphill struggle in many, many ways because the last 70 years has radically changed what's happened to our food system. And those changes really have set in in the last 70 years. There were glimmers of it at the start of the century, sort of like the first supermarket was in like about 1912 or something like that. Um, but the ideology of that first supermarket was was to simply put lots of local produce into one space. That isn't quite what happens now, um, especially here, which is a shame. Um, yeah. I've forgotten what I was talking about. Yeah, well, actually, it leads really nicely. <laughs> it leads really nicely into what I was going to ask at Jilly was that you have produced a very lovely book that is designed for children. But having said that, having looked at it, I think that I might try a few of the recipes out. And there's some really delicious and interesting yeah. things from rhubarb crumble to making your own ketchup. What prompted you to take on that challenge? Well, I suppose growing. So we've been growing for about 13 years for our own you know, restaurant operation. Um, and then I did start working with other hoteliers and restaurants. And, and there's a big core of those. And every year, you know, I go around two or three or four or five times and talk to the chefs and tidy stuff up and take out what they're not using, plant new stuff. And, and I can see that as a journey. And, you know, they're getting better at it. Um and it was through, so through Belfast Food Network, I was commissioned to write a restaurant growing toolkit, um, which was quite short, you know, it was quite short. But when you think about it, the things that you would grow for a restaurant are very different to the things you would grow at home because a restaurant needs a, a large volume of mm -hmm. stuff. At home, you want a big variety of, you know, few things that, that are going to, um, give you variety in your dad and then I started thinking about schools so, I mean schools are off July and August um, which traditionally could be your business busiest harvest time and, and that needs to be different as well um, and I went into a few schools and, and I saw what they had and they maybe had some funding they got raised beds they planted a few trees maybe but but the person who drove that had left you know the teacher had left and there were lots of teachers who who said to me, "Look, I, you know, I'd love to make that better. I'd love to do growing with kids. I don't know what to do. I'm not clear what to do. Um, and also funding, no resources. No, schools didn't have any money. Actually, um, what money they did have had to go on really essential things. So I thought, I'm going to write like a toolkit for schools. Um, I didn't, you know, it's not one piece, but it's it's much bigger than than the restaurant one because I just I just decided I'm going to start writing it, um, and it had to be free, and I started researching as well. Um, the, the reports that were out there, what resources were out there, it was like um, or OHS, um, school gardens, Jimmy Oliver's kitchen garden and stuff, but all of those 
programs um, required money, required the school to pay something for the resources. So um, anyway, over the winter, wrote the book. Um, and I threw again through Belfast Food Network, put it through the Food and Schools Forum, um, where it was picked up by Sia, um, a brilliant lady called Glynis Henderson, um, who was quite senior in Sia at the time. And they decided to take it on as a project. Um, and turned into the website Growing for the Future Project so which is brilliant absolutely brilliant well I'll put a link to it there's a PDF online I'll put a link to it in the notes accompanying the podcast because I say although it is aimed at children I think really anybody who's an interest in these issues or feels a little mm-hmm. bit overwhelmed at the thought of starting to maybe grow their own produce or cooking their own food from scratch it's mm-hmm. a really useful resource so I was going to ask you, where do you think our responsibilities lie between producers, intermediaries like supermarkets and consumers in terms of reducing the waste associated with food? For me, I, I think it's collective. I think it needs to be across the board. It needs to be, you know, producers of food, farmers want to do the best they can and they're getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed for margin because it's all about... Um, it's all about making it cheaper mm-hmm. and more efficient in inverted commas and um, lean processes and lean thinking and that sometimes that you know that can be a good thing but when it comes to food personally I think it's just about it comes down to the lowest common denominator and you know <laughs> it doesn't lead to the best type of food so producers don't want to have waste and they will argue that the big buyers who unfortunately are the multiple supermarkets mm-hmm. at the moment um, you know food service is still it's, is a big market um, and I would encourage new producers always to look at food service as well because it's it's a different market and you can get a lot of loyalty there but um, but the multiple retailers will argue that people don't want to buy the wonky bitch and and stuff and then consumers will argue well we're not offered them and so it, it needs to come across the board I I think and also consumers at home dates dates are a thing that put my head away so you know I can again growing up in the, the food industry and the meat industry and all the rest of it you know I understand safe food and you know meat and poultry and fish and all the rest of it but like vegetables don't need to have a best before Really, and so and people who are who are not that familiar with food or cooking and stuff will look at a perfect packet usually of peppers, and say, "Oh, that's up today or tomorrow," and they're perfect. They're absolutely brilliant mm-hmm. because processors allow margin for error. They allow the mm-hmm. fact that you will put it in the bed of your car on a hot summer's day and then go and pick up the kids and go for a coffee and get some. So. They allow margin for error, but there are people who will just chuck that. Anyway. Oh, I've witnessed mm-hmm. that, though, and it's because when I was preparing for this podcast, I recalled sharing an office with a former colleague, and he found it was a chocolate biscuit, and it was one day past its no. date, and I watched him look at the date and go, oh, I can't eat this, and throw it in the <sighs> bin, and I went, oh my goodness, no, it's something like chocolate, never mind, so fresh fruit and vegetables, which you can smell them, you mm-hmm. can, it's the same as things like milk, you can open the top of it, and you can smell it, but chocolate will last are really long and I say that somebody has scarred the cupboards sometimes in a desperate need for chocolate but <laughs> things like that will last far and even if it's bloomed a little bit it will taste absolutely fine 
And so that was my real insight into realising that some people take that as gospel, uh, that will throw stuff away, even if it's perfectly fine. It's part of the um, power of the industry. This is part of the problem because it's so big and it's so ingrained and they've changed our shopping habits so dramatically just in one one large generation, really, I suppose, or one lifespan, really. It's um, it's shocking. They did an experiment on um, uh, cans of canned food uh, quite a while back, and they opened canned food that was up to 50 years old, and it was perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. So we need to rethink, we'll yeah. need to, to rethink do we need to live and buy these dates or with certain products obviously uh where we need a little bit more concerned Mm -hmm. but there's plenty of things you said canned food where it's really quite flexible and we can use our common sense Mm -hmm. in terms of whether it is good to eat or not again again laura i think that comes down to it's like the schools thing you know if every child from primary school personally i think there's a couple of generations there that we've lost already Mm completely disconnected don't know how to cook I don't know how you fix that but I do know that most children go to school every day Mm -hmm. and that is an amazing opportunity to teach them about um, the smell and touch and taste and Mm flavour of of real stuff and what that you know carrots grow in the ground and they should be dirty and the thyme can smell absolutely gorgeous and you know salad can be a lovely thing actually if you put a good dressing on it and you know there are things you can do in the classroom that you, you it doesn't require a kitchen and stuff and then and then you get people who start living like the French and Italians live which is you know they smell it and they touch it and they don't need labels and they don't need packaging actually mm-hmm. because they're confident in their own knowledge I mean converse, conversely people are so tied to the use by date thing that um, I, and I've seen this myself I've seen stuff in the supermarket that to my mind is clearly gone mm-hmm. it's still in date but the the whole chain yes. has been yes. interrupted somewhere. The packaging has been, you know, damaged, and, and I'm looking at it going, I that shouldn't be in the shelf. That you know, and somebody will probably buy that and will probably eat it. So it can go the other way as well. Yeah, because, yeah. Exactly because because they don't think, gosh, that's a strange color. Or with meat, smell I've like seen that? that with meat as well, yeah. where sometimes you're looking it's at oxidized, and it's in date, yeah. but you're thinking that does not yeah. look like and meat that you would want to consume. On the inside of the packet, and and so something has fallen down there, and actually, people aren't savvy enough to know that that that's not right either. No, it's definitely not. The, I think the responsibility is is actually it's, it's for all of us to be honest. I do think that the food issue is is getting so big that we all need to wake up to a little bit. Um, producers, we would promote essentially, I suppose, without without getting into the sort of more extreme versions. But for producers and things, and particularly farmers who are growing veg and things like that, we would always promote nature friendly farming um, on the basis that our current sort of industrialized food production globally is arguably or not um responsible for 60% of our biodiversity loss across the planet and that is that's an incredible figure so perhaps if we sort of started to reverse that train chain you know that that trend a bit just by starting to recognize that actually the land that we farm is is actually the land that provides us with everything we need to live um and that the sort of 
the interconnectivity of, of a, an ecosystem is actually something that should be explored in greater detail because it was around a lot a lot longer than us um, and it will most probably be there a lot longer than we're gone and we will be gone if we don't start changing something soon. Um, the supermarkets need to radically change their supply chains radically change their supply chains there's this horrific dialogue at the minute that's really concerning um about how we must feed the nine thousand and nine no sorry nine billion and um actually do you know what we we've got enough food to feed nine billion people we just need to stop putting it in the bin um so until people actually start looking at our current system and making our current system waste free that dialogue is gonna is gonna lead to more more industrialized process to make more fake food that has less nutritional value than what we already have and that is a direction that is frankly terrifying the bad diet sort of diet related ill health in northern ireland at the minute it costs the nhs one million pound a day and that's today so if our food system breaks down even further and becomes further and further away from the natural systems that provide it imagine what that cost is going to you know, multiply to. It's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And I think that individuals, and I hate the idea of people being called consumers because at the end of the day, we were not put on this earth to buy things. That's not the purpose of humanity, to buy things. It's really not. It's much more than that. Um, and I think that people need to educate themselves in many, many ways. Just read things. Don't just sit and watch a chef program and switch off. Watch a chef program and actually do what the chef is doing. Um, try and grow something on your windowsill. Watch Food Inc. if you haven't seen it or The Honest Supermarket or any pl one of the plethora of programs that are out there trying to highlight these issues. And just start thinking consciously about where your food actually comes from. And that's a, that's a really good starting place, I think. I was going to ask you what advice or guidance that you could give to somebody wanting to li limit their food waste. Would that be number one on your list to start educating ourselves? Absolutely, 100%. Start reconnecting with where your food is from. Start understanding the benefit of the, frankly, of the planet. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, we've only got one. Um, and we need we need it to work for us. You know, we need to find a way of working with it. Um, so start thinking about where your food comes from because food at the end of the day is having a much bigger impact on all the environmental issues that people are talking about now than has been recognised really today. Some people would argue that, that in, in its totality, the food production system itself creates 50% of the greenhouse gases that we're all so terrified about and are supposed to be stopping in the next 10 years, which is an impossible concept at the way at, you know in in what we're currently doing it's not possible it needs to radically change and it needs to change tomorrow not in not next year when we've had to think about it or in 10 years when we've had a little bit more time to think about it but tomorrow it needs to actually change something needs to shift so people actually need to start tapping into what it is that they're doing and take a responsibility for their own actions and start thinking about all that messaging that we've had embedded in our brains. Did we really, you know, is our time so precious that we can't chop a carrot? Really? Is it? And if it is, what is it busy doing? That's a broader question. But I think that, you know, there's something in this sort of dialogue about starting to look at how we're living as well in a broader yes. kind of way.
I is it really so. nourishing? Is that stuff that we're doing in our... And I, I'm mm-hmm. saying this as somebody who's really quite guilty of it, but mm-hmm. is what I'm doing that's taking me away from preparing my own food nourishing me in other ways? Or is it actually contributing? Like social social media can be really amazing and we can use it to share, as, as both mm-hmm. of you know, because um, you've used it in different formats. We can use it to share information and ideas mm-hmm. and resources, but also it can be a really negative thing mm-hmm. and to promote values and ideals that we don't necessarily want to embed mm-hmm. within us so I think it's certainly something to reflect on what am I doing with my time and I'm making am I making the best use of it mm-hmm. and what could I do differently that would actually help my overall well-being mm-hmm. absolutely Julie, would you agree would you say that cooking would be pretty high in terms of your list of things that people can do to help reduce food waste yeah I think so absolutely um I'd probably look at portion sizes and reduce portions from a business point of view um, and get creative with, I mean, we, we, you know, we find ourselves Googling now, you know, what to do with carrot tops or, you know, reading the work of Tom Hunt or, you know, uh, turnip tops or, you know, can we use those in soup or, and, and stuff like that. But certainly in terms of individuals, and I, I think it's lovely the way there are programs and books now for, you know, 15 minute meals or text-free ingredients mm-hmm. and you can make delicious food with those and 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 you can see it's really empowering for people because mm-hmm. you know there's again some of the supermarkets have um have cut on that people do want to cook and so they've made a ready meal in essence but has different bits mm-hmm. of it that you know you put in at different times and, and people are think that's cooking and it's not actually it's really expensive so if you buy, if you buy like a whole chicken or and a bag of spuds and a bag of carrots or a cabbage or do you know what they're not um, that's not expensive and there's if you know how to cook there's so many things mm-hmm. that that you can make with those core ingredients like if you take a, a two hundred gram ready meal at um, four pounds that's twenty pound a kilo do you know what I mean but carrots and onions and stuff are under a pound a kilo normally mm-hmm. generally depending on the time of year right? you know what there is but again it's 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 known that and unfortunately it's sometimes it is the people in the lowest income areas who don't have an opportunity to buy mm-hmm. fresh food and be able to cook with them even if they do know how to cook because you need transport or there isn't a shop or you know which isn't a whole other problem but um, but yeah no it's I mean I think cooking from scratch would solve a lot of issues. It would also open people's palates up to things. Like, I mean, lots of stuff is it's loaded with salt and it's loaded with sugar and it's loaded with all sorts of chemicals and E-numbers. And, you know, that's that's not good for anybody. It's really not. And I think that the, um, I think cooking also opens up the idea of, increasing the diversity of the food that you eat because the more the more you cook the more confident you come and the more you can try new ingredients and part of the problem that we've got within the current food system is it's effectively mono monoculture kind of agriculture um which means that we're down to i think it's something like 13 13 grains essentially make up the majority of the the world's grain stores which is insane because we've got thousands of them um we need diversity within the food chain in order to shore up the natural systems that that protect our food supply, basically. Um, so I think that that would be a really nice way to, to do it. 
I really do. Especially if you're starting to think about growing like unusual herbs and things on your windowsill and stuff and just start to make small steps, little tiny small steps. And the most simplest thing that anyone can do is to buy fresh, local and seasonal at any given opportunity. Absolutely. So finally, at the end of each podcast, I ask guests the same question. What do you think it means to be a good business today, either generally or from the perspective of sustainable food? Um, what I think it takes to be to make a good business is you need happy staff, um, happy customers. You need to be profitable. Um, you need to endeavour and really endeavour to minimise your impact on the environment um, and improve what happens in society around you I um, and feed people well. So uh, for us as a business in the Enador, we want to feed people proper good food. You know, it's like real bread that contains three ingredients or four ingredients, not you know enhancers and improvers and you know that's in 99% of bread that people buy every day look at the list of ingredients you don't you don't need those you do need them if if you wanted to sit on a shelf for 10 days and still be soft but um it's not again it's just all of that stuff it's not it's not good and it's not healthy and but we know we can go to bed at night we're not perfect. We're not a perfect company, but we're trying. Like we're, you know, we're changing things all the time, trying to be better. The one word that stands out for me among all of that really is integrity. Mm-hmm. Integrity in everything that you're doing, from yeah. the treatment of employees, of customers, your suppliers, suppliers. and the food that you are producing has integrity and and trust that people can have trust in it. Absolutely, integrity and. Authenticity yes. as well. I mean, we in, in Ireland, we have amazing natural resource. You mm-hmm. know, okay, it rains. That's brilliant. We need the rain. You mm-hmm. know, it grows stuff. It's just, we can grow so many things here. Pasture, pasture-fed meat and dairy. Like, that is that is the envy of the world, mm-hmm. you know. And, it, you know, I know... Italy is a home of like cappuccino. I've mm-hmm. never had nice milk in Italy in my life because mm-hmm. they don't have lovely grass like we do. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But no, that's uh, true. so and those are things that thankfully now we are celebrating, and there are more and more um, artisan producers and niche producers and young people who are just getting into this industry, and it's, it is amazing. And that's where the hope is. It is. I think that um, in a broader sort of sweeping brush kind of way. I think that businesses essentially need to move, start start thinking beyond profit, to be perfectly honest. I think that businesses, especially in the next sort of 10 to 50 years, have to not have profit as the bottom line because the profit-driven companies are going to start failing because of issues like honesty, integrity, fairness, respect for employees and their customers and things like that. And I think that the companies that are going to work in the long run are the ones that actually use integrity as a means of doing something useful that happens to provide employability, that happens to provide a service, that happens to do all these other wraparound things. And that's where the profits will come. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, the current 
rather strange model of business just isn't working. It's only working for a very tiny proportion of people on this planet. And we aren't in that loop most of the time. Thank you both so much for agreeing to take part today. And thank you to the audience for listening. For more information on the Good Business Podcast and our other work related to ethics, responsibility and sustainability, you can follow us on Twitter at QUBethics or email ers at qub.ac.uk. And I'll put links into the show notes for some of the things we've discussed today, such as the work that you are doing, Kerry, and also Jilly, your book. Thank you so much. I really do feel inspired to go away and start with something humble, but nonetheless, hopefully delicious in terms of growing and perhaps some herbs and really thinking more about what I'm, you know, what I'm consuming, what I'm putting into my body and also what I'm doing in terms of my time. And hopefully anybody else who listens to this will stop and reflect and perhaps do the same. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.